is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we welcome guest C. Derek Varn for the third edition of The Joy of Sects, our org-by-org trawl through the actually existing left. This is part one of our discussion of the platypus-affiliated society. Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. This is Lexi, a fraud perpetrated by English taxidermists. Rosa? Uh, Rosa, um, getting George Soros money. <laughs> Donald? Uh, Donald, armed with dialectical materialism so advanced it's indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> and joining and- us tonight is special guest C. Derek Varn. Yeah, uh, C. Eric Varn, uh, I'm part of the zombie left. So. <laughs> so I guess this is volume three of our ongoing series, The Joy of Sects. Uh, we're talking about a group called uh, the Platypus Affiliated Society. Um, it's one of those groups where I've known about it for a long time, and I've seen some of their writings, but they never struck me as like particularly like offensive or particularly interesting, so I don't really know that much about them. So I'm just going to throw this out to the panel. What is exactly the Platypus Affiliated Society? The Platts are a sort of post-Spartacist group that have a lot of like Frankfurt School elements and seem to be trying to engage with the death of the left, the idea that the historical left that was fighting for a classless society has more or less gone extinct as an idea and as a grouping. Is that right? Yeah. Or it hasn't gone extinct, but it is dead and is not aware of its own death. That would be the way that they would probably phrase it. Mm. Um, That it has regressed to the point that it is no longer really a left anymore. And the Platypus Society, is, uh, its origins are complicated. It has three founders, the most prominent which is Chris Catrone. He is the chief pedagogue and also the chief political officer. The Platypus separates its organization out into a political wing and a pedagogical wing. Um, it is not a party. It does not conceive of itself as a party in any way. It conceives of itself as an educational group. Its goal is kind of twofold. One is to bring the contradictions of the left um, in front of itself. Two is to create the space for a new socialist politics to emerge. But by new, what they really mean is super old, because what they would see themselves at is is uh, ordo Leninist, like you know the true heirs of kind of center left Leninism. Yeah, it seems like kind of um, really orthodox Trotskyism is kind of where they would be politically if they were to bring back the left. But the complications to that is they read that through three different filters, which are not normally associated with Trotskyism at all, one of which is the Adorno-Hochheimer ring of the Frankfurt School, not the Marcuse ring. Wing, you know, Marcuse is bad. Not entirely bad, but bad. Um, I'll have to go into that a little bit, I guess. Poststone, uh, Moshi Poststone, and capitalism as a subject of its own history, as opposed to um, the working class. And while they don't agree with that, it does influence their thought, and I could get into why. And then um, Catron also worked closely with Adolf Reed. There are disagreements between the chief pedagogues, um, you know, the founders, uh, Leonard Spencer being one of them, and I actually can't remember the third guy at the moment, because I didn't deal with them very much, um, about how, you know, how Trotskyist are they really? Um, and Catrone definitely sees himself as more Leninist. Leonard Spencer is more Trotskyist, but they have ways of categorizing um, Trotskyists themselves on a Stalinophilic to Stalinophobic 
um, spectrum. So there's a dialectical huh. center of Stalin, okay but bad, that you have to kind of find. Um, and they also will talk about that there is a critique of parts of Marxism and what they do, but they will never state what it is. Um, and also, um, at a plenary, according to Patron, Lenin was always right, even when he contradicted himself. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that uh, Patron, he described Platypus as a, as a combat organization. Yeah. And and it's, waging it's, a war on the left, I guess, was how he put it. Right. But it's interesting is what they see, the units of the... They see that they see themselves as both in the left and apart from the left simultaneously. Um, they're apart from the current left because it's dead and is unaware of its death. Um, but they're in the left and that they see themselves as actually an heir, the actual heirs to the to the left tradition, which they also see kind of going through the Spartacist League. I mean, that's what's my my own personal. I'd never dealt with the fine the fine tooth combing of Spartacist. I mean, of Spartacism and the various. Um, sex of Trotskyism until I was actually in Platypus. So, you know, I sort of thought of, like, Cliffites were a thing, and I kind of thought they were what Trotskyists were. Oh, no, no, no. You haven't seen Trot, so you've dealt with Sparks. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then <laughs> so the first thing you do if you go in, if you join uh, Platypus, or actually, before you even join, you're, you're given Kolakowski's The Idea of the Left, um, a bunch of writings by Adorno, and then as soon as you, as soon as you kind of complete that first round of education and they let you in, Hold on, I gotta let my cat out. They uh, they start giving you Spart stuff, <laughs> so particularly wow. IBT Spart stuff. That's quite a jump. I mean, you go I from. Mean, I'm gonna be honest. Some of that Spart stuff is actually pretty damn good. Like the Sparts have produced some quality pamphlets. I, I, we, I know I'm gonna catch like, fire for saying this, but like they actually have produced some decent pamphlets. Maybe we should like clarify what the Sparts are a little bit for the uninitiated. That would make sense. Okay, the Sparts are basically um, the International Communist League, Fourth Internationalist, Trotskyists. They're very much like very orthodox Trotskyists that like stick to exactly what Trotsky's positions are. Mm, I don't know. Big on defending the Soviet Union as a degenerated worker state. They're very else... big on anti-imperialism. They also have that deformed worker state thing that, quote, ortho, quote, trots have, which I don't think has yeah. really any seeds from Trotsky at all, really. Well, That's... yeah, basically the idea is uh, after World War II, when you had the Red Army occupy Eastern Europe, the question was, okay, so if the Soviet Union's a degenerated worker state because there was a workers' revolution there and it degenerated, what about these countries that, you know, had states that were, you know, established by... Soviet tanks to not workers' revolutions. So the argument goes, well, they have nationalized property forms, and those nationalized property forms mean that, therefore, it's a worker state, and it's a deformed worker state that's, like, you know, progressive economically, but politically is ruled by a bureaucratic Stalinist caste. Yeah, that seems even vulgar for Trotsky. There was something about the historical experience of the workers' revolution that made the Soviet Union what it was. And his widow, Natalia Sadova, has a, a piece where she's resigning from the Fourth International, and she's kind of spelling out, like, you know, this... I don't know if my husband would have defended all these all these uh, Stalinized states from above. It's, um, I don't know. Anyway, that's my thought on orthotrot, but it's worth worth pointing out. Yes, this is what, quote, orthodox Trotskyism is. And um, yeah, so they also out. have weird views on NAMBLA and sexuality. <laughs> Yeah, which, and which, also ISIS. Which, uh, you forgot okay, the ISIS so part. I'm going to say some things that are going to get me probably in a lot of trouble. Um, the Nambla, <laughs> oh, the Nambla views are not condemned. They're not endorsed, but they are not condemned in Platypus. However, the anti-imperialism taken to the extreme that it is taken is. Yes, um... My understanding is that Catrone left the Sparts over um, the Gulf War, basically. It, yes, he did. And and that's my understanding, too. I don't know if he would exactly phrase it that way. I don't want to put it in his mouth, but that's, that's my understanding as well. And a, a lot of the differences between um, Spartacist and Platypus actually comes from 
that issue. So Platypus has this conception um, coming out of Marx, that they see coming out of Marx, they're reading of Marx, um, is that Marx is the critique of socialism by socialists through liberalism, and that the only way to make the working class the revolutionary subject is actually to push liberalism forward itself. It's actually an old, old, old developmentalist view. So it's actually kind of accelerationist. A little bit, yeah. Um, and you have to build up productive forces. The world revolution has to come from the highest developed point of capital, not the lowest. So anti-imperial revolutions can only be resistance, and, it, and resistance means loss. And while I might be phrasing some of this more vulgarly than Control would, I do pretty much this is what I got from the internal debates. There are disagreements among membership, even fairly high up membership, as to exactly what all this means. But the the main point about um, from Platypus is that you can only bring communism about through liberalism, bring liberalism to negate itself through its development, which does sound a lot like old developmentalism, but it, mm. it's it's more it's more typologized than that. Even um, there's like whole spiral schemas that you kind of get into about how they view history. Yeah, they seem to be very into the, the bourgeois revolution becoming the proletarian revolution, basically. You have to go through those stages, and those stages have to be fully developed, and they can't be they can't be stalled out at any one point. Um, and a lot of people read them because of because of some of their critiques of say, you know, like Maoism as really as really like a state bourgeois revolution with with degenerated anarchist and nationalist elements they read them as left communist but they're not they overlap but they're not they don't really believe the same things at all yeah i've noticed that there's um they're both very skeptical of these um kind of bourgeois anti-imperialist nationalists kind of like left communists are but they come at it from a different perspective because they kind of see like the imperialist as almost more progressive than the anti-imperialist and so like, for example, some members will hold the position that, you know, it was not right to condemn the war in Iraq, for example. Yeah, um, they, they'll also hold the position that that you, that both Zionism and, um, and anti-Zionism are wrong, but there is a rational kernel of truth to Zionism, which was the most inflammatory um, statement, you know, that basically got Katron called a Nazi. Yeah, Gatron um, basically um, said that um, the Palestinians aren't anthropologically bourgeois, and they can only become that way through Israeli settler colonialism. And so the only way for Palestine to be emancipated is through Israel. And so he had this very weird way of—and he, he talked about the rational kernel of racism. Jesus. And so— Basically, he he um, ended up kind of showing himself to be a pro-imperialist. Hmm. But those organizations survived after that was all leaked. Wait, quick question, though. Um, what was the NAMLA stuff? <laughs> okay, so they actually hold that if you had a fully liberated society, um, age of consent would would not be meaningful because everybody would be able to make rational decisions and you wouldn't need to protect um the young from predation but they don't believe that's possible now so they wouldn't endorse nambula like the way the sparts would but they would say well there's a kernel of truth to that line of thought okay okay yeah the the and the spartacist league had a general um and not okay okay as in that like that's fine but okay i get i get what they're (laughs) talking about right right and uh, yeah the spartacist league um more or less are defending a pretty standard new left sort of <laughs> argument about uh, law and age of consent law because you know they were against you know law and the <laughs> state uh well, the thing about the sparts is that they uh, a lot of trotskyist groups like the workers revolutionary party for example took very almost conservative lines on sexuality right right the rest of the new left but the sparts kind of wanted to you know be like radical proponents of sexual freedom along right. with the rest of the new left and so that led them to take a lot of positions that actually at those time at that time wasn't that rare but nowadays are obviously right. very much looked down upon well c- certainly the the aspects of 
child sexuality in the new left yeah. are extremely uncomfortable looking back and even you know a lot of like hardcore queers are, will condemn that stuff um although there is still a sustained critique of people that are like you know these age of consent laws are used to crack down on uh, queer relationships or that have like a, a insignificant age gap or something yeah and, I think I mean, that was actually kind of the spart argument uh, that it was used to persecute gay people. Th there is some truth to that, but mm, th it's just uh, the age of consent laws. I don't think they were just the work of moralists. It was part of a general liberal attempt yeah. to protect the vulnerable. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I've heard about these debates before, but I heard like Nambla specifically, and I was wondering if like they commented on it because like I know people there have been like groups that have like tried to like defend like Woody Allen's democratic rights or whatever, Ugh. you know. So I just wanted to see if they, it was something specific, but it's more okay. I see it's more about like the generalized debate about like age of consent yeah. and stuff like that. They wouldn't, and also like the part of the point when we when we had these discussions is that that's not possible now. You would still need age of consent right now because we're not fully, um, well, we're not through capitalism to have fully developed ourselves into our rational capacities, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, and so it's almost like the Platts kind of see communism as capitalism's development taken to its height, basically. Yeah, they do. I mean, explicitly. That's actually pretty explicit. I mean, they're not the, – the, the unflattering comparison is always to spiked in the, in the U.K., but it's not entirely wrong. Remind me of spiked a lot. I could see how that idea of, like, develop the cap – like, communism as a development of capitalism would, like, look that way, like, in, like, the future communist society 200 years from now, like, looking back on history. But I know Mark, I know Mark said that, you know – like capitalism creates the preconditions for communism, but it seems strange to me to think that like communism is, is like a logical outgrowth of capitalist development. Yeah, they're, they're really in the dialectics. Like well, I met a lot of them when I went to their conference, and you know there was a lot of Hegelian dialectic talk. I think um, in one of his talks, McNair kind of criticized super Hegelian readings of capital. And I was around some of them, and they were just like sneering at McNair's and like, "Oh, McNair's, you know, so wrong. You know, Hegelianism is the way to go." Blah blah blah. So they are very into that kind of Hegelian Marxism, like really in the Lukash, Korsh, the Frankfurt School. So that plugs into their love of uh, Postone, I guess, because yeah. because of that sense that you know, capital is sort of the subject of history. And I guess Derek, you were saying that they're responding to that they're trying they're trying not to adopt that but that's sort of the a seductive way to maintain yeah. the hegelian edge of the critique i guess they still seem to believe that the working class will be the subject of history but it is not at the moment because of the regressiveness of liberalism so they see this as a as a primarily political problem is that fair to say yes in fact the biggest debates but you know the people that they had the most interaction with at first was kasama as kind of the 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 most willing to talk enemy um anybody any liberal they could get on a panel but then they also had a lot of discussions with the with with with, with um the magnarite factions and the um communist party of great britain provisional committee and the the Marxist humanist, but their argument with the Marxist humanist is they saw the Marxist humanist as a, as totally economistic and that their politics were actually new left despite their economistic bent. And that wasn't coherent. Hmm. And that they also engage with, they, you know, they engage with communization theorists before that leak happened. I mean, the, the big conference um, that I was not able to attend because I was in South Korea at the time, but um that caused a lot of us to leave. And there's several factors, great split. There were six of us who kind of left at the same time. One was two Spartacists to be in the Platypus League, which is funny. They actually <laughs> were two, to, they were two Spartacists to be in the IBT too. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to slander anybody, but it, it was a, it was definitely a thing. The other was wow. Ross Wolf, who wanted the kind of out Catron Catron and had personal issues and said he you know said that he left on his own accord he was not he was voted out um ben campbell wanted to start his own magazine um that was tamped down on and he went and then 
left to, to, to found North Star and invited some of us from the Platts to write for it and eventually actually take it over. But he kind of had a breakdown at the, uh, the conference, I guess maybe, yeah, I, I think that's public knowledge. And then he, he outed all of the internal conversations to the ISO. Um, who, you know, Cliffites were like enemy, the, the Cliffites and the Platts are like, you know, that was like blood in the mm. water. And um, I just left. I refused to endorse, I refused to endorse the leaks, but I also refused to condemn them. The reason why I refused to endorse them is because I, I, I agreed to an organization and I, you know, I actually don't think anything was in the leaks. It wasn't actually public knowledge, despite what people said. Um, but I also... Uh, refuse to condemn them because it is what everybody actually said. The, the uh, so the, this conference, which was their biggest, basically Platypus like tripled its membership in a year. They were they were big and they had grown in Greece and Frankfurt and uh, and you know would mean a couple other people in Asia, um, particularly South Korea and India. But um, and all that said, they weren't interested at all in like us translating things into Korean. Um, hmm. So we couldn't do much there. So when two, the two of us who were in Korea went back to the States, um, particularly me, because they lost access to campuses after I, after I, went, I moved to Mexico, they didn't really have a whole lot of use for us anymore. I mean, they adopted the same thing that the, plot, that the Sparts did, is that they, for reasons partly of funding, actually, they, they prefer to be on um, very well-off campuses where they can form student groups and get money to do their publications. Yes, that's how they were able to fly me to go um, speak at their conference. Yeah, I was but wondering they, where their money comes from. Yeah, the money came from the Art Institute yeah. of Chicago. Yeah. Like in Illinois, they have like a – they have like – they have like a um, one in like U, UIC, which is like a big school for like – STEM like doctors and that sort of thing, and another one on like Illinois in Champaign, which is another big state school that's relatively well off. And same with Northwestern too. Like basically, wherever there's a well-off college, there's a platypus society. They have no influence on the West Coast, though. So that's an interesting thing. Like Berkeley, even though Berkeley, for example, would be considered too hostile. Mm -hmm. Um, so they tend to like, so when I was in, when I was in Platypus, I was a member, I was a member of the soul chapter. I was leader of the day John, uh, day chapter. And I was also, um, I answered to the New York chain of command. Um, and hmm? I was going to ask, how did you get involved in the organization to begin with? But uh, Pam Nogales and I be, we started talking about our experiences in the early aughts with the anti-war movement. Uh -huh. And I had been a um, – I had been – I had known people who would actually gone on to sign the Ustin Manifesto, um, <laughs> kind of funnily. And – What um, is that? It was it was a coalition of pro-war leftists and anti-war leftists, but anti-war leftists who refused to do things like um, endorse Iran or endorse Gaddafi, etc. But a lot of them became libertarians, or they became kind of like Hitchens-esque quasi-neoconservatives. Mm. Um, and I was consistently anti-war, but I also was like, you know, we shouldn't be. You know, we should be working to support Iranian workers, but we shouldn't be endorsing Iran. And my, you know, my own political history prior to that um, is is a little bit complicated. But basically, I did anti-war work almost solely, and I got involved with a lot of conservative anti-war stuff um, around antiwar.com. And also where I was at in Georgia, that was the more large representative. And that's how I met people who would become later on the alt-right. And I'm not just talking about Nick Pale. I'm also talking about Richard Spencer. So, Oh, wow. You, you, you knew him back in the salad days. <laughs> yeah, I, knew, I, I, I met him when he was the very, in like 2007 um, when he was still working for American Conservative before he basically you know, kind of parted ways because he was too racist for them. Jesus. 
Yeah, but like, um, I know Spencer, he he started out basically in the anti-war, like libertarian right. And a so lot of the other, um, yeah, a lot of the other alt-right people has kind of their background who've been in it for a while. My big thing was the battle for Seattle and Sea Island. I was 18 years old. I have been reading Chomsky since I was 15. You know, you know how you do. <laughs> um, it, it was the end of the Clinton years. I was disgusted by Clinton, but where could I go? I mean, obviously, I don't want to go to the Republicans, particularly in that time. And like Newt Gingrich, vomit. <laughs> so I'm an 18-year-old. I go to Seattle. And what I see in Seattle was a goddamn clusterfuck. And, you know, like people singing hippie songs and putting U wings on and getting their heads busted in by the cops and like Pat Buchanan speaking and then every other fucking person. And I just left kind of disgusted, but I was still considering myself part of the left for another two or three years. And then I went to Sea Island. Um, now, what's Sea Island? Sea Island was the G8 protests after 9 11. And, and it's, in, it's in my home state, it's, it's off the coast of Savannah. And the only people who had the gumption to show up was was uh, like was basically libertarians. So I just worked with them. Um, I didn't agree with them entirely, but and that was what I was getting, you know, most of my info from. And the only thing that really broke me from that is around two thousand and five, two thousand and six. I saw the way the housing market was going, and I was like, "Huh, this is messed up. This libertarian shit doesn't explain that." I'm going to go and read some Marx. Yeah. And serious. And then I, I read that and I was like, you know, I got, I got a uh, political economy woke and, um, <laughs> and moved to, you know, the left. And what I flirted with both when I was in the States and then when I moved to Korea for work um, was the SPUSA. Um, but the SPUSA was this weird conglomeration where, you know, they, they wanted to kick out the Democratic Centralists, but they had all these Maoists in there who, you know, said they weren't Democratic Centralists, but they were still Maoists. And most of them left to yeah. join Kasama. And then you had um, the, the soft social Democratic faction kind of like actually pulling political stunts that were kind of underhanded to make sure that these, these more people to the left of them stayed out of out of any power or leadership within the party. Um, and so I saw that working, and I started talking to um, Tam Nogales, Ross Wolf, when he was still a member, and then Chris and a couple other people um, uh, who were around Platypus. And then they told me, hey, we have this member who's in South Korea. Would you like to go meet her and start do- going through our reading program? I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bored. It's Korea. I barely speak the language sure and um i did that for a year and then occupy happened and i went down to kind of monitor it and i went to new york and i met i met pam and ross and i met a bunch of the senior membership who was in new york not the people in chicago which is really the epicenter um and after you know after a year of being a quote-unquote fellow traveler i was fully inducted dues paying member and i was for a year and a half roughly um I didn't realize there was dues. Oh yeah, there and there 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 are dues. They're actually kind of high. They don't really collect them. Got it. Um, <laughs> uh, but there are dues to be a member. But most people aren't members, and you can't like it. It actually is kind of it's it's structured very similar to things like the CPGB, where you 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 have to be invited in. Um, you can't just ask to join. Um. Mm. But anyone can show up to a reading group, and they run them on colleges. So, hmm. I just want to say, like, uh, like Marx, Marx is the real red pill, because, <laughs> like that, that's what that's what flipped me from being like a conservative Republican was just like reading the Communist Manifesto. So, like, there's there's definite there's definite value in just like reading Marx, like it, it like it really is like the best basis to like understand like why like the system works the way that it does. So, I mean, yeah, and I can see how Platypus, in the context of the anti-war movement, which was such a shit show, like, I can see why that kind of appeal, I can see why that group would have an appeal, because they're kind of saying, well, the left is just completely decomposed, and it's just full of crazy sex, and we really just need to figure out what's going on, and do some really heavy intellectual work. Right. And they claim to be non-sectarian at first too. I mean, it, early. I don't know if they do anymore. 
But in, in 2011, 2012, they said you could be, you could have any philosophical background, and 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 be, potentially become a member. Mm. But I, I never considered myself a Trotskyist, even when I was in the organization. Um, and I mean, I'm not a Trotsky hater either. But like, I, you know, my my primary experience with Trotskyists was like the ISO and. Um, solidarity and that had absolutely no interest to me um yeah i mean it seems like the main theoretical bone of contention is the sort of frankfurt school more yeah. so than actually trotskyism um and you you're making the distinction between the uh, adorno horkheimer frankfurt school and the marcuse frankfurt school um can you oh, wait, draw, they do draw too. that out a little I mean, bit sure uh, so there's the first generation of Frankfurt School, which no one gives a shit about. We're not going to talk about who <laughs> founded it, but and then there's Karl Korsk, who isn't technically involved, but is kind of around. Um, and then there is Adorno and Horkheimer and uh, Marcuse. Adorno and Horkheimer turn against the new left as it develops. Marcuse sort of embraces it. Um. Catron's implicit critique, I don't remember if he ever said this, is Marcuse had too much Heideggerian bullshit in him. <laughs> um, and then there's a bigger, you know, reading where you split, you also split off from uh, from from later Frankfurt School people like Habermas and even Geist and, uh, Geist and Axel Honneth and all that. So they kind of they 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 kind of you know they like schemas and I think I don't I don't remember if they ever told me an explicit schema but there's like first generation Frankfurt school which just gets it started you know second generation old old guard which is Adorno and Horkheimer um, who were critiquing you know the left and the new left in particular and one of the things you have to read like within your first few months of being around them is you have to read the the in the letters between Adorno and Marcuse, like it's part of the the introductory um, packet. Is that is know? that where the discussion of left wing fascism comes from? Yes. Mm. Seems especially relevant now. And it's also where uh, the discussion about you know the like Horkheimer was pro Vietnam Vietnam War. Adorno was anti-Vietnam War, but also refused to like endorse the counter the countercultural protests, and then Marcuse embraced it. Although, according to our Catron, is later Marcuse actually corrects some of his errors as he gets older. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like the way I the impression I got from Platypus was basically like they were trying to do like a cadre group of intellectuals. That was kind of continuing the Frankfurt School, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly the goal. They they kind of they they see the they see the Frankfurt School as an heir of Trotskyism, believe it or not. Huh. Um, through through Orthodox Leninism, that since Trotskyism is really Orthodox Leninism, with the exception of stuff like permanent revolution and all that. But in, in the main, that it's Orthodox Leninism with some variation, that since uh, Adorno was a crypto-Leninist, and pretty damn crypto if you ask me, but a crypto-Leninist, yeah, um, then uh, that there's a historical tradition there and that they see themselves as doing the same sort of function as the left-wing critique of the left, which is what they see Marx is doing too. And they're not entirely wrong about that. I mean, like... Marx and Engels did spend more of their time explicitly, Engels says it, um, critiquing the left than they did critiquing the right, because it was the left that they were trying to organize. Um, and so you're taught a lot about, you know, your job as a combat organization is to expose these contradictions through putting them out there. And the other thing is, you know, I, I'm, I am actually making things a little bit more coherent um, than I was taught because they don't teach you this stuff when you immediately enter, even when you become a full member. Like you have to draw these hmm. conclusions from kind of, you know, explications of history and kind of cryptic statements and um, 
the reading list and the overlap between reading IBT materials and old Sparts materials and all this Frankfurt School stuff and then reading Post Stone and reading Adolf Reed, um, reading Kolakowski before uh, Main Currents of Marxism, um, and all that. I mean, it's a very and one of and I get frustrated with this actually with with, with Chris. Um, but Chris has a habit of saying this is really the same as this and like knocking out mm. nuanced distinctions between the two. And a lot of our, you know, he, his famous quote about me is my education was incomplete. Um, but I was the least, I was the least deformed of the leavers. Um, <laughs> Backhanded compliment. Yeah. Um, but you know, they also, they wouldn't take people who had developed political thoughts. They didn't, they didn't want that. That was another thing about it. I was actually one of the, the senior membership was a lot older than me, even though a lot of them were just finishing the PhD, but everybody else was in their mid twenties or younger. Some of them as young as 19 or 18. Wow. This kind of sounds weirdly cult-like, like the organizational <laughs> structure. I'm not even joking. It's like they don't reveal your intentions until you get deep enough into the organization that you can be indoctrinated shit say, like that. You're saying that there is a far left Marxist group that has cult like tendencies. That's pretty bluntly <laughs> uh, in there. Uh, crazy, I know. I'm and just particularly saying, one that has Trotskyist origins. Yeah, wow. I'm just saying Kolakowski is level one and <laughs> then, it, you know, level you five it, is Adolf Reed. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> well, I don't know. The, the the thing I guess that is tripping me up, listening to all that, is that okay. First of all, you're hitting twenty somethings with a, a shitload of material, and I gotta say, I actually sort of admire the way Platypus has this educational structure. Um, there's something about that that I think could be useful. The way that they went about that, there's something I admire about it. On, on the other hand, um, I guess the way I've been looking at the Frankfurt School is sort of informed by. Uh, Russell Jacoby's Dialectic of Defeat, which I read probably because of you, Derek, and um, and how it's more much more continuous with that sort of historical vertigo kind of left communist tradition. And then the obvious thing to say about platypus and Leninism is that, you know, it, no matter what kind of Leninist you are, the critique of imperialism is big. And probably the only sustained, consistent thing about platypus is their kind of rollback to a second international, like the worst parts of the second international stance on imperialism. Yeah, their refusal to condemn anti-Dutch, for example, um, and stuff like that, yeah. Um, well, some people just say that platypus is basically just the American equivalent of the anti-Dutch. There are anti-Dutch members in platypus. There were sympathetic, there's people who came out of anti-Dutch um, who you know, and and they weren't. The one thing I will say about Platypus that that's that is ironic about the organization. It had more women and more people of color in it than any other socialist organization I've ever been in. Um, outside of Catron and in the in this in the big three at the top, um, most of the mid-level leadership is female, um, and we had a whole lot of people who were like, you know, Frankfurt and Turkish, but they were anti-Dutch too. So huh. we had like, I had this Turkish guy, I remember I'm sitting on the couch in New York and had this Turkish guy, you know, critiquing Occupy for being, um, what was it, structurally anti-Semitic because of its, <laughs> because of its con uh, condemnation of banking. And, and that comes from... Uh, Postone, and there's a big anti-Deutsch fan club around Postone, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. They kind of are into that whole idea of, you know, the progressiveness of capital is what needs to be defended, and we need to, like, push capitalism to its most progressive tendencies. They're the people that are really into McDonald's, right? Yeah. Well, um, see, it's like the height of civilization because it feeds so much, many people for... Yeah. So um, such a low amount of money. Uh, that's yeah. where that comes from. The difference between the two 
between platypus and antidorchus, antidorchus really sort of like weird self, like it's sort of like an inverse German nationalism. Like they hate Germany so much that they'll justify the Dresden bombings and that sort of thing. Like they're really strongly anti-nationalist, whereas the platypus sort of sees like a revolutionary tradition, bourgeois revolutionary tradition in the United States. And yeah, I noticed be... that um, a lot of the platypus members almost have like a patriotic kind of um view of the United States. They kind of like see the United States as um like the bourgeois revolution, socialist revolution, basically. And they do, and that's another thing to consider. Is a lot of the leadership is, I would say, labor aristocratic, Ivy League educated, from the developing world. People that normally would get snatched up by libertarians, frankly. Um, and again, this is not commented upon by Platypus's enemies because it doesn't help their a lot of their arguments. But Sunit Singh, Pam Nagales, um, they're all they were all born outside the United States. The, the only exception to that is Chris and uh, Spencer, Spencer Leonard. Why do you suppose that uh, Platypus? had like this really like diverse i guess you get like mid-level strata within it like what what was it that was it just like outreach or was it something in the overall like uh, trajectory of the organization um both i mean part of it is when you're i mean a lot of these people are this you know a lot of these people like we have people who grew up in venezuela for example and hate it um they're educated. They came to the United States. They actually do experience some real relative freedom in the United States. And for, you know, someone like me who's coming out of, you know, um, touring, I was I was touring like Southeast Asia at the time, partly for work, uh, partly because I had a lot of spare time as a, as, you know, not a lot of money, but a lot of spare time as a professor um, in South Korea. I, I, I saw why they felt that way because a lot of the left was really 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 nationalistic in the third like crazy nationalistic in the third world but i i felt like a lot of people were just flipping the problem so you know instead of like having like an acute dialectic it's like well we gotta you gotta rush to america because it's you know ground zero for development right now and so we gotta make america like flipping germany was in 19 1915 1916 1917 um that's how they justify it hmm. and hmm. a lot of it's also there they're pulling strongly from international students in Ivy League education, and that, that was increasingly less white um, at the time, but it's not from working class people. I was going to say, Lexi mentioned earlier about how, you know, they, um, she admired to an extent the educational component of it in terms of educating the membership and so on and so forth. But I was thinking, like, education to do what exactly? You know, well, like, yeah. Like what is what is what is yeah. the, what is this education for specifically? You know. Well, to me, uh, well, one thing I noticed is that there's a lot of, you know, there's kind of like you're taught to think like Catrone basically because he, you know, Catrone has all his kind of pet theories and historical schemas, and you notice that the membership were always kind of repeating them and talking about them and whatnot. <sighs> That's just sad. Yeah, there's a lot of that, but you know what they what they see themselves as doing as a combat organization is to actually com their goal wasn't just to bring people in the platypus. In fact, that really wasn't the goal, and it became even explicitly more not the goal after uh, 2013 when the when the organization had its great fallout and the leak, and you know the ISO published all that, and they were kind of shunned from left forum and. You know, people are like, oh, my God, you want to destroy the left. And I'm like, they say it in their mission statement. Did you not pay attention? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, and oh, the, you, the only people that I remember engaging them that really, like, engaged them for them and really took them at their word, uh, weirdly, was Mark Lilla on one level. I was going to say, Lexi mentioned earlier about how, you know, they uh, she admired to an extent the educational component of it in terms of educating the membership and so on and so forth. But I was thinking like education to do what exactly, you know, well, like, yeah. like what is, what is, what is, yeah. the, what is this education for specifically? You know? Well, to me, uh, well, one thing I noticed is that there's a lot of, you know, there's kind of like 
you're taught to think like Catrone, basically, because he, you know, Catrone has all his kind of pet theories and historical schemas, and you notice that the membership were always kind of repeating them and talking about them and whatnot. <sighs> That's just sad. Yeah, there's a lot of that, but you know what they what they see themselves as doing as a combat organization is to actually com- their goal wasn't just to bring people in the platypus. In fact, that really wasn't the goal, and it became even explicitly more not the goal after uh, 2013 when the when the organization had this great fallout in the leak, and you know the ISO published all that, and they were kind of shunned from left forum and. You know, people are like, oh, my God, you want to destroy the left. And I'm like, they say it in their mission statement. Did you not pay attention? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, and oh, the, you, the only people that I remember engaging them that really, like, engaged them for them and really took them at their word, uh, weirdly, was Mark Lilla on one level. Is on, basically. Yeah. It's hyper-vanguardism. Like, there's no doubt about it. Those, yeah, you you convert people to join orgs. Also, those orgs may be converted by being put in dialogue with you know with each other. And Platypus always would try to set up these panels constantly, even when they weren't at plenary, um, to put people who who opposed each other and hated each other um, together. And what actually was part of their undoing is part of Platypus's growth between 2010 and 2013 is that everyone read their magazine because they get people like Zizek in it or, you know, all kinds of huge people. And they're trying to ask them questions to critique them, and you write all these very specific questions. You have to write them through committee um, and get them refined down and blah, 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 blah. And they think that they're, like, outing these people. And what they were actually doing is spreading ideologies they were opposed to. Right. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that their praxis, their main praxis is holding panels and getting other leftists to debate each other and then asking really tough questions to those leftists. And so it's almost like what they're trying to do is get the left to self-critique itself so it can, you know, and then learn from that process so they can greater um, understand the left's history or whatever. It's a very intellectual kind of... um, practice is very much just kind of like engaging in dialogue for the sake of you know intellectual reasons yeah and when you're when you're like me and you're an alienated you know you get really frustrated with everybody running to run out into the street in 2010 and like supposedly have a revolution without doing anything um that's really appealing because you do see all these things that are held together pretty much by delusion but what you realize very quickly if you go in there is that if you buy their their understanding of the regression of capitalism and i mean like you know like a german newspaper compared Catron to john the baptist as kind of a an insult and he embraced it and he wanted to be john the baptist to linen jesus and the linen <laughs> the new linen has not been found yet um and uh i mean that's his own language yeah because he calls himself like the last marxist or whatever yeah, yeah he calls himself the last that's marxist so he calls himself the last marxist um you know if you if you and it is hard i mean i i, I know that a lot of people hate catron occasionally catron will say something that I, that I do find like very insightful like you know um but often you'll find what he says that's insightful. You'll also find said in Adorno or even someone who doesn't agree with him, like Mike McNair. Um, so it's not unique to him what is good. What is good, what is unique to him is this hybrid way and this kind of elaborate conceptual schemas that you put together to hold it all together, even ideas that seem to be completely not related. I don't know how someone can be both related to Postone and also a spark, but you know, apparently. Right. Well, they kind of throw it all together in this weird kind of uh, melange of different ideological tendencies in the left. And I think kind of what they're trying to do is by, like, throwing all these different ideas together and critiquing all these leftist groups and engaging in these dialogues. I feel like they have this idea that this vanguard of plat- the platypus organization is going to, like, figure out, like, the great historical, theoretical, you know, 
idea that's going to um, allow for the left to like be built up again or whatever. Yeah, but it's eclectic rather than syncretic. It's actually kind of what like you know boilerplate community college trots do, you know. And I say that having you know been around like community college trots, they're not necessarily super concerned with how everything hangs together. It's more about you know getting a bunch of points that kind of functionally work to grease the wheels of your organization. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, it almost feels a bit dishonest for Platypus to be taking this sense of, you know, we're the theory vanguard and we're, you know, really thinking this through because a lot of this stuff does not hang together. And that was also brought to my attention uh, yeah. by the endnotes, uh, the speech by uh, Beninev um, at the uh, Platypus plenary. And it was one of those moments where you're like, God, platypus is depressing. They think the left is dead. You know, geez. And then you kind of realize that there's sort of a couple layers of naivete on top of that grizzled Frankfurt School depression package. And, you know, not only does platypus think politics can somehow <laughs> has like an intellectual motor, but then they're also taking politics as something uniquely determinative, like a Leninist would. And uh, for all their periodization, they seem to have not done the political economy under the political periodization, which was a really interesting and it's just the most Marxist point in the world that you could make. The concept of the left allowed Leninists to put forward a theory of betrayal and therefore to justify their specific practice. The attempt to form a disciplined party as a party that is defined by the fact that it will not or doesn't betray the class. Instead of asking questions about the dynamics and limits of class struggle, the concept of the left allowed Leninists to say, the class was ready, but the left was not. The left betrayed the class. The question of strategy moves to the center, displacing the problem of the absent working class majority. But here, strategy came to refer less to the relationship between the party and the class, and more to a strategy of the internal party organization, a strategy in relation to the left, either to ensure that it does not betray, as in a kind of a popular front strategy, or precisely to provoke its betrayal in a way that others can recognize, as in the United Front strategy. Given this brief summary, we prevent our intervention at the level of a kind of therapeutic purge or a catharsis of sorts. We plead with you to let go of the bad object, the fantasy object, and instead to grasp the real object, the forgotten object. The concept of the left functions as a means of suppressing class analysis. That comes through very clearly, we think, in Platypus's own self-conception. The Platypus society knows that a great distance separates us from the tradition of the left, but it lacks a theory that can really explain that distance. The reason platypus cannot answer their own question, which is posed implicitly, why is the left dead, is that the question is posed at the wrong level. In fact, if the left is dead, that is merely a consequence, and we might even say a logical consequence of this other thing, the key thing, that the workers' movement, as it presented itself in the 20th century, is over. Why did this workers' movement end? It cannot be explained, as platypus seems to do, by transmuting that story into one about oscillations within the left between pro-organizational and anti-organizational moments, between a good Bolshevism and a bad anti-Bolshevist reaction. The real story, the story of the rise and fall of the workers' movement, is a story about industrialization. In its origins, this industrial working class formed a historically new class. On the one hand, this new class confronted the real problem of acclimatizing itself to dangerous conditions of life and work in urban zones. On the other hand, in newly constructed liberal states, workers face the hatred of their social betters, both the aristocracy and upstart bourgeoisie, who meant to exclude them from the polity. It was in response to these twin problems that the workers' movement was formed, a movement that sought to acclimatize workers to their conditions by an afternoon.